For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning hungry for your word. I confess my own uh, limits, my own uh, fragility, and pray that your spirit would come and take your words and apply them to our hearts this morning. Would you do this, Lord, to strip us of our pride, but not only to do that, but to give us your glory, your dignity, your love. We pray that you would continue to edify us and strengthen us as a family, as a building, as your army of people. Holy Spirit, come and be with us this morning. Be with me in my mind and in my mouth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, uh, God is on trial every day in our minds and hearts. This is one of the major themes in John, and that's why uh, oftentimes he speaks about things like witnesses, or uh, judgment, uh, or verdicts, or truth. Uh, This is a main concern, and it's fitting because if you're here this morning and you don't know God, uh, basically what's happening in your mind is uh, your mind is a trial with you as judge. And you're beginning to wonder and ask Uh, Is God good? And it's not actually entirely bad to judge God. In fact, there's some ways that the scriptures invite us to do this. Christians, in fact, do it as well, right? Uh, We judge him and wonder in the dark corners of our hearts, uh, could he really love me? Is he really good to me? Uh, We ask this question almost every day if we're honest with ourselves. But we have to be careful when we try to answer this question. This is the trick of the whole matter. Because our human default in judging uh, whether God is good has different answers typically than what the Bible has. So, uh, for instance, our culture in America at large uh, generally says that God is good if, and let me just give you a few kind of categories and see if these fit. God is good if happiness or joy is available at my convenience. Uh, So this is what drives my personal impatience in lines and traffic. (laughs) Uh, I expect more ease and more happiness to be around in my life and to be on demand. Uh, Of course, on-demand happiness is actually very hard to pull off, right? You have to be fairly wealthy, uh, and even then, 
it turns out that it's uh, quite easy to go broke and quite easy to turn your demands onto others. Uh, it turns out that the pursuit of happiness can actually alienate you from others and damage relationships. So another way we say this is, well, God is good if my personal fulfillment is at its maximum in my work, at my home, with my spouse, my sex life, my relationships, my hobbies. Right? God is good if I get all the satisfaction I can want from these things. So again, this ideal of the perfect life is uh, barely possible, of course, uh, for those who were, except for those who were uh, mentored by devoted parents and had given money to allow them to study job and you know, debt-free and uh, clout enough to land the sweet job and so on and so forth. But even then, uh, we all know that once we get the perfect life, what? Never quite perfect enough, right? Uh, there's always something that's just not, well, I really wish... I could have, I really wish so-and-so was a little bit, our longings always outstrip our abilities. You know, this is usually the darkest moments in many marriages when we put the whole host of our expectations and demands onto the spouse. It's crushing for them. It's also crushing for us because all of our hopes are put in them. And they can't possibly bear that weight. So, one other way we answer this is God is good if my projects, my desires, my ambitions are not disappointed. If I am always well-received, if I am never rejected. Let me just tell you, this is the one that's hardest for me. This is where I tend towards. This is my personal ministerial sin. I want my projects, my things to go well, and if it, they don't, that's when I get depressed. This uh, has been especially hard for folks who have uh, graduated college after uh, the 2007 dismal market, right? You graduate college, you've been promised all these jobs, and then I'm back <laughs> doing the same job I was before college or doing during college. Uh, this is also really hard if uh, you're someone who actually doesn't have a clear set of ambitions. You don't know exactly what you want to do with your life, and you begin to think, well, am I just a waste of space? I don't have some clear agenda. So if these are our criteria for God's goodness, if we, these are the things that we're going to judge God with, right? we are always left asking these questions. Is God still good if I feel like my life is aimless or unsuccessful? Right? Is God still good if people don't think I'm as awesome as I think I am? <laughs> is God still good if I have significant sorrow and hardship? These are real questions, and I think they're actually quite good. We as Christians uh, wonder, for instance, if we should continue in dissatisfying marriages with troubling or seemingly oblivious spouses. Uh, is this what God has for me? Does he love me if he insists on me staying? You know, another example of this, uh, very similar questions present themselves to Christians who want to follow the Lord and yet struggle with homosexuality. Right? Uh, if we think that the, the struggle that's present for them is easy, uh, I would plainly disagree. I think it's simple, but following the Lord is always simple, but never easy. In fact, uh, it's a real example of the kind of obedience we are all called to, but struggle to do. Uh, God's commands are simple but hard, and uh, people who have sexual desires in themselves which defame God and yet want to follow Christ, are posed with these questions. And I think, actually, uh, these questions are similar to the ones that are posed to us. 
who don't have that particular struggle? Does God really love me if following him may require lifelong celibacy? How can I know God loves me when he denies me the romantic fulfillment I so long for? How can I know God loves me when he confronts a part of me which I've always felt and assumed to be fundamental to who I am? In fact, I think that actually this is the same kind of struggle that all of us have in our hearts. I know what obedience to the Lord requires. But I often don't want to do it because I have a hard time believing that obedience is really going to pay off in the end. Right? I generally suspect that God is calling me to drudgery. Right? So I doubt his love, and I begin to wonder, can I, actually, can I actually trust this God? Do I actually know that he loves me when I have to deny my desires in some way? So my focus in the sermon is actually not so much on the denial of our desires, I think that's obviously part of it, but on how we can know God's love for us when the prospects of our future life seem very bleak. How does God want to be judged on this question? What are the criteria that God gives us to figure out whether or not he actually loves us? Well, I have three points this morning. The Father's love gave Jesus. Father's love gave Jesus. Secondly, the Father's love is Jesus. And then thirdly, the Father's love is judge. Is judge. So, first off, the Father's love gave Jesus. You know, uh, look at verse 16 with me. It says, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Part of what this is saying to us this morning is that if we want to know about whether or not God's uh, love is legit, whether it's for us, is we have to reckon with the fact that uh, God says that his love is the whole rationale behind all things existing, right? God's love is the engine that has driven all of history. It is the perspective that makes sense of everything. God's love is the thing that makes everything fit together and actually make sense. But what's startling about this, that's all fine and dandy, right? God loving. Great. It just said God is so loving that, but it says that God loved the world. God loved the world. You know, for uh, biblical writers use words different ways, right? So when John uh, says flesh, he doesn't mean it the way Paul means flesh. John, when he says flesh, just means, you know, body, creatureliness. But when Paul says flesh, he means actually the thing in us that opposes God, our enmity to God, our hostility to God. So when John says world, that's more of what he means. He's saying uh, with world that all of creation that's in rebellion against God. It's the whole order of hatred to God. All those powers, all those people who are bent on stomping out God's name in the world, all those people who are without God and without hope. It's not a neutral word for John. 
So when he says that God has loved the world, it's profound. It's profound. It's the same world that hates God and is perishing, that God has set his love on. John says that the world is perishing, and he he ends up talking about two kinds of life here, right? Uh, One that looks alive, but on the inside, it's actually rotten. It's actually falling apart. It's currently, actively caving in on itself. And then there's the life that is constantly renewed. He calls it the life of the age to come, or eternal life. Life that is always made new from within itself. Life that actually it may look very different on its exterior, but internally it has this fountain of uh, new life and strength. This is uh, profoundly beautiful because uh, I was once part of that world, right? Uh, Many of you may not know this, uh, but I grew up in the church uh, and uh, wonderful parents, but for many years, I hated God. I am one of those people who wanted to stomp out God's name. I am one of those people who would gladly, gladly tell you all of what was wrong with who God is how he's actually evil, and, uh, and tell you what's wrong with the church and everyone else. I am one of those people. Uh, I was 13, in fact, uh, when I began drinking and painting graffiti and chasing pleasure and ignoring God. I was young and strong-willed and energetic and on all external accounts, very lively, Right? Uh, doing just fine in terms of my abilities and my strength and my own self-perception and my wisdom. But here's the thing. I was actively miserable, rotten, uh, depressed constantly. So when I finally came to the Lord, uh, what I expected was to find that the God I'd been spurning for the last three years of my life at that point uh, was actually ready with mercy. That he was actually uh, ready to forgive me. That to find his love waiting for me who had hated him. Well, that was the difference between uh, night and day for me. It was the beginning of God's beautiful light, of this love dawning into my darkness. And this is the whole sweetness of Christianity. This verse. God's love is a profound fact. Simply because of the people he has chosen to love. Us. Right? We miss this. Uh, We miss how beautiful and overwhelming this is uh, because we often forget how deeply we were and still can be opposed to God. We don't see how absolutely overwhelming this is reality is is that this is actually every Christian's story. Whether or not you grew up in the church, whether or not you grew up with faithful parents, in fact, uh, you and I were born into a world that has opposed God. Uh, Maybe you were born to Christian parents. Well, guess what? At some point in your family history, uh, there was uh, a family that hated God, and yet God has set his love on you and your family. This is the Christian story. I hated him, 
He loves me. Amen? One author I read this last year said, this is not unconditional love. This is contra-conditional love, right? This is me spurning him, and even against that fact, him coming and finding. Coming and loving. So John says, in particular, that God's love to the world is manifest because he gave his son. He gave his son. And he means two things by that. He means uh, both the incarnation, but also Jesus' work on the cross. So, you know, the incarnation uh, is an interesting thing. It's actually the point when everything we thought we knew about history changed right away. Because here's the deal. It might have been possible to live in God's world up to that point and say to yourself, you know, God, who made all things, who inhabits a holy eternity, light of light, has never known what it's like to be rejected has never known what it's like to work a dead-end job for his whole life, has never had uh, dirt in his eye, has never been hit on the back of the head. He's never been disappointed or scuffed his knee. Someone might have said, God remains untouched by the suffering that he has put into the world. But here's the deal. The incarnation changes everything because God the Son took on flesh. The very God who allowed and put that suffering into the world has himself now, what? Entered in and come and suffered. He who made the world worked a job. Think about that. The one who uh, is the delight of the Father uh, was a dead-end carpenter. He who spoke the world into existence was spoken to with mocking and hatred. That's what the incarnation means. It means that uh, God was unwilling to save us without himself taking on the cost, himself entering into our suffering and being made like us through suffering. The very author of redemption writes himself into the story and takes the worst job. That's what the incarnation means. He has foreordained the most horrible things to happen to himself. God foreordained his own suffering in Jesus. That's the incarnation. But secondly, John says that he gave us, he gave the Son, and it means that uh, the Son has etern accomplished eternal life for us on the cross. And that word gave is actually uh, what's often used to describe Judas giving Jesus over to the Sanhedrin. Right? It's a word of betrayal. So uh, the Son was betrayed over on our behalf. John tells us that uh, in Jesus, the one in whom was life, the life was the light of man. That Jesus, that Son of God, who has the very essence, and principle, and power of life in himself, it's that Jesus who took on our death. It's the one who has life itself in himself, who took on our perishing, all our rebellion, and gave us his very life as he rose from the dead. So now, if you trust in Jesus, just like uh, you're resting in that chair, if you rest in him, what the Bible says is that he receives you, and he actually brings his eternal life into your 
body into your life just like if you were receiving in him into your home. He comes and puts his new eternal life into you because he has already taken that active misery that lives in us. You know, this is the very heart of who we are, who we are at Christ Church. Right? This is what defines us. We are a people who have been found by God, loved by God, had our misery and our death taken away, and given his life. So if you're here this morning and you uh, feel that kind of perishing life in yourself, that kind of active misery, uh, you need to know that in Jesus there is eternal life. Eternally renewed life of Jesus on offer this morning. You simply, what you do is you simply come to him and you ask for mercy and you offer yourself to him. And you can say, Lord Jesus, I leave my old life behind. Give me your ever new life. It's as simple as that. In fact, this is the whole of Christianity, right? Old Christians know this well. We pray this prayer every day. Trusting in Jesus for our lives. So this is the content of God's love. That God has uh, loved those who have uh, hated him. And he has loved us by giving his son and his son entering into the very suffering we've had and even taking that suffering on, suffering for our sin. But we actually haven't answered our original question. Right? We haven't answered the how we know part. For many of us, uh, simply being reminded about these things I've talked about so far is enough. It has been for me this week. It's been tremendously refreshing that we haven't totally answered our first question. How do we know that God loves us? And this is my second point. The, Father, the Father's love is Jesus. The Father's love is Jesus. Let me read verse 16 again, and I'm going to change one word, uh, the word so, to just be a tad more accurate, even though I love our translation. I'm going to read it to you this way. For this is the way... God loved the world to the extent that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That word so uh, usually in the Greek means uh, this is how or this is the way. So John is definitely telling us how much God loves us, and that's kind of what we've been thinking about so far. But what I want to focus on is actually John is saying, hey, this is the way that God has loved us. This is the place to look. Jesus is saying, if you want to know the answer to your question, look here. Look here. What I'm getting at is that here in Jesus, we have the proof of God's love. The whole proof. The proof of the Father's love is Jesus because Jesus is the Father's love incarnate. You know, uh, Jesus says that uh, he is the one the Father has loved. That's pretty remarkable uh, because then he turns around and uh, gives himself to us. So if you want to know whether or not God is good, Jesus says, actually, the only thing you need to do is just to go and look at him. He says, actually, um, how the weather turns out 
lack of natural disasters, provision of job, home, food, fulfillment of desires, or even affirmation of my person, none of these things actually have the proving power I'm looking for. None of these things actually are proof of God's love to me in the final analysis. Jesus says that uh, he doesn't place any weight on those things as wonderful as they are. In fact, Jesus says the entire weight of the question is on his shoulders. Everything depends on him. One of the things this means is that if we come to Jesus with a long list of expectations about how our life should be, we may very well be disappointed. We may very well miss entirely God's love to us. We may be blind to his real and abundant love. And this is a hard point. Here's the reality. Uh, I'm assuming most of us give thanks for our food when we eat it. Right? Uh, I give thanks to the Lord every day that I have a family. I give thanks to the Lord every day that I have a body that works, that there's air to breathe, that the world is full of so many good gifts. So are we saying that I know God loves me because he forgave my sin and that if I suffer in other, less spiritual ways, it just doesn't matter? Am I saying that all these other things just don't matter? I'm actually not. It doesn't mean that our desires or needs are bad or unimportant, but that they stop short of the real glory of Jesus. Uh, we're saying that all the other blessings that I have in my life, along with the difficulties and persecutions, all of those are given to me through Jesus. All right? So is this a small point? I actually think it's major. I think this is a major point. That's why I'm laboring this so much. What God has promised us in Christ is that our lives will be conformed to Jesus' life. That my life will begin to look more and more like Jesus' life. So uh, as we take up our cross and follow him, Jesus begins to uh, shine through us, as it were. You know, this matters quite a bit uh, when uh, we've been following the Lord faithfully, and then we wake up one day and we find our spouse with cancer. Or uh, we, uh, our loved one is incarcerated or trapped in an abusive relationship, or our job is taken away. Our entire livelihood and the dignity we built on that, all those things are gone. When these things are threatened, we instinctively ask, has God turned his back on me? And I want to say that's not a bad question. In fact, you just go ahead and read the Psalms, right? That question comes up all the time. What I'm saying is that uh, we ought to expect God to bless us. That's good. But the way we answer that question of whether or not God is good is answered differently. Jesus tells us that the main answer of whether or not God is good is whether or not God has come to save us. Whether he's given himself for us. So that means that all these things, my rights, my desires, my relationships, my health, all these things can go away. And I can still know, without a doubt, that God loves me. And loves me well. That God's affirmation of me is not the measure of his love for me. The measure of his love is his giving Jesus to me. 
Listen, the point here is that if you have Jesus, you have the headwaters of all the other blessings. Right? Jesus is the headwaters of the rest of the blessings we have. He says this in verse 35 later on. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So it's because of the overflow of the love of the Father towards the Son that he has now brought all of us into that same relationship. So the blessings that you and I have in our lives, working bodies, food to eat, a family, a church family, a building, all of these things have been given to us through Jesus, through him. You have to ask yourself, is the Father stingy to Jesus? Does he hold back to his son? No. Is he cruel to Jesus? No. Of course not. Jesus is the beloved son. He drives the dad's nicest car, right? He's the, he's the kid who inherits the business, who owns the estate. He gets the honor and praise of the father, and all because of the father's overflowing love. And now Jesus is saying, hey, listen, here's the deal. Forget all the other stuff that you worry about. That will be taken care of. I'm giving you the chief honor. I'm giving you my place. I'm giving you the Father's love for me. It's now yours. Jesus is telling us that he has gotten all these blessings for us, and so he is the chief blessing. You know, rather than limiting our... uh, God's love to spiritual things, Jesus is actually telling us that the spiritual thing that has happened to us makes everything else possible. Now we actually, if you're parents, you get this with your kids, right? This makes sense. Uh, When you ask your kid uh, to put away a toy and come to the dinner table, let's say, uh, it's not uncommon for young ones to uh, scream, hit, claw, throw themselves on the ground, uh, generally begin spurting out all sorts of hateful... uh, Villainous things towards you, uh, saying things like, no, I hate you. <laughs> the child's so fixated on the toy uh, that they begin to treat you as if you're seeking to do them real harm, right, by asking them to come eat dinner. Uh, what bad parents you all are asking your children to eat nutritious food. Terrible people. It's hurtful as a parent, right? It's hurtful as a parent. Because uh, functionally, what we hear is that child saying, Uh, You, mom and dad, uh, are less important to me than this toy. If you take away this toy, you are not loving. You are not good. You don't care for me. This is the thing I will judge you by. Of course, it takes patience with little kids. And remembering that uh, they get just as confused as we do, and their little hearts are just as sinful as ours, and so if we expect mercy, we can certainly give it to them. They forget that you are the reason they have the toy, right? (laughs) I know you like the toy. I got it for you. I'm on your side, bro. You know, come eat some food. I'm really in your favor here. It's easy to see with kids and toys, right? Easy to see. The hard part comes when the Lord asks us to put away the things we love, to set them aside, to follow him. Can we say, God loves me, I know he does, when obeying him means embracing real hardship? When embracing him means losing certain people's approval or friendship, maybe indefinitely? 
first want to say that this is something we need to grow in and that the Lord knows it and that he is the one who grows us. The Lord is patient and he knows our weaknesses well, right? But I also want to say that so long as we believe that God owes us, as long as we have that belief that God owes us, we will never learn to see God's love and will resist obeying him. If we believe that God owes me success at work, abundant wealth and luxury, ease in my marriage, ease in my parenting, ease with landlords, we will take him to small claims court and treat him like a criminal. If I believe that it's right for me to demand from God no hardship, no costly obedience, no calls to sacrifice, I will begin to talk like God has done me a grave injustice. Listen, I know it's hard. I'm right there with you. These things are in my heart. What I'm saying is that when it comes to, uh, is that if we come to God with demands about how he will love us, we miss the whole point. We miss the whole point. And this is uh, our last point. If we insist on being God's judge, we will never see his love for us. This is the last point. The Father's love is judged. Look at verse 17 briefly with me. For God did not send his world in, son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, why does John have to ask that? Or why does John have to say that? Why does he have to say that the son didn't come in to condemn the world? It's because at a fundamental level, we get that God is judge. We get it, right? Look at verses 19 and 20. John says that uh, the reason why we hate the light is because our evil works will be exposed. We know God is judged, and if we're afraid of being exposed, it means that there is someone who will and can and ought to expose those evil things. Well, if God is judge, what does that make us? As long as we're apart from Christ, it makes us the accused. And this is a pro tip, okay? If you're accused, it's generally not good to begin accusing the judge, right, when you have a courtroom setting. Usually not the best idea. But I also began the sermon by saying it's actually not entirely bad for us to judge God. What do I mean by that? What do I mean? I mean that uh, God actually intends us to discern and reason critically. God actually intends for us to use our brains. But so long as we insist on God meeting our terms, so long as we insist on us being the judge, we will miss the fact that he has loved us. And in particular, we'll miss the fact that the judge, who will make all things right at the end of the age, came preemptively. He came preemptively with mercy. The judge of all the earth comes to the earth, lives among a people who are full of sin, and an earth which hates him, and yet he walks among us compassionately, tenderly, patiently, with mercy. So he comes to us in a way that actually makes sense to us, that displays his love, but also in a way that disarms our judgment. If Jesus came with mercy, why is it that some of us are, are condemned? Verse 18 actually says that if we can manage to be condemned when the judge comes with mercy, it's actually not the judge's fault. It's self-inflicted. That's what John is saying. He's saying that if we can encounter the true judge, and he comes with love, 
and kindness, ready to forgive and wash us clean. And yet we reject that. It's not his fault, it's ours. It's self-inflicted condemnation. You know, uh, this is the posture of our hearts if uh, left to themselves. We want to be God's judge and insist on him meeting our terms. And so Jesus actually warns us here very sternly that if you insist on this and you will not accept your need for his mercy, you have only accomplished your own condemnation. It's frightening. This is actually the way that uh, God speaks of hell. He says that you uh, dig your own trap because uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you expect God to be able to meet all your demands, the question then is going to be posed to you. Do you meet all your demands? Are you able to love everyone as you expect everyone to love you? This is a heavy word, but it's true. If you don't know Jesus, you must deal with the fact that you, by rejecting him, will only earn hell. I only say this because Jesus is bringing this up. But here's the reality. Jesus is a much kinder judge than we are. The problem with our judgment is that it's so harsh. It's unrelenting. But Jesus says, actually, he comes with mercy. The judge has come ahead of time with mercy and kindness for those who would come to him. Let me just say one more thing in closing. You know, love is a central theme of this passage, but this love actually exposes. And to someone who's hiding, that doesn't feel very loving to have themselves exposed. So if we read this with 316, that God loves the world, it turns out that he does not love us. Uh, we can't determine whether God loves us by whether or not he affirms us or even makes us happy on a day-to-day -day basis, but whether he has a way of dealing with our sin and whether he himself is willing to take the cost on and pay it. It turns out uh, that all the things that we love in our life are given to us by God's overflowing generosity. And if we begin to demand them, they actually lose their loveliness. Family, wealth, luxury, enjoyment of our life, if we begin to demand those things of the Lord, they lose their savor. What I'm saying is that it's not that we should stop desiring. In fact, the Lord welcomes our sadness. But that when we begin to trust to the Lord all these things and embrace his love, we will stop demanding and begin to actually receive and enjoy his kindness. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have been so kind that though you are the just judge of all the earth, you came ahead of time to offer mercy, to offer grace, to offer a way out of our sin, of the mess we've dug for ourselves. So we pray this morning that you would seal these things to our heart, that we would be free. Free to trust in your grace, free to trust in your love, to know that you, our Lord, have loved us. 
Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you have given us and that they come from the overabundance of your love to us. Be with us this day in Jesus' name.